2: Nam mihi nui and welcome to our changing world. call Alison Balance ahau. Tonight's show is all about water. It's an important part of our lives. We take it for granted that when we turn on the tap, clean water will come out. But Wellington Water is worried that if Wellington City experiences a large, damaging earthquake, that will not be the case. Much of the city's water is currently piped in from the Hutt Valley. There are about 180 kilometres of water pipes running around the Wellington region, and many of these cross fault lines. The main pipeline into Wellington City, for example, runs parallel to the Wellington fault line and will almost certainly be damaged. Now all of this leads up to the reason that a small drilling rig is currently parked off Miramar Peninsula in the middle of Wellington Harbour. Here's Wellington Water Project Manager Ulvis Alive to explain.
1: Our current storage in Wellington, based on rationing of water, will last us only 10 to 15 days, which means um, after 15 days we'll have no water in Wellington. And to reinstate the whole network, the estimation is around 100 days. That means we have a gap of 85 days. So to mitigate this uh, big gap, uh, we're looking for alternative water source of Wellington. So one of the projects that uh, we were bridging that gap was cross-harbour pipeline, where the objective of this project was to pipe the water from uh, Hutt and Wainui Mata under the harbour to the city. But then when we got NIWA involved, because we done seismic <coughs> surveys for us, we realised that aquifer that we were trying to pipe water from extends all the way to Miramar. And then one of the ideas of the project team was why can't we drill close to Miramar and tap that source closer to the city to minimize environmental impact on the harbour, and also save massive costs for ratepayers. And that's what we're about to do. We we're trying to now validate our assumptions. Our big assumption, based on newer research, is that we have water under the aquifer next to Miramar, and uh, we mobilize a team. I think we have the best team <coughs> in the country. We have best drillers. We're all New Zealand-based uh, drillers. It's very exciting times, and I understand it's one of the first times. Um, We drill offshore uh, for water. The whole world industry drills for oil all the time, but not for water offshore. So I think it's one of the first uh, offshore freshwater bores, at least in New Zealand, if not in the wider world.
2: I'll come back to drilling under Wellington Harbour in search of more fresh water later on. But first, I'm curious to find out more about the aquifer that already provides four cities in the Wellington region with much of their water. Mark Japari from Earthen Mind is the go-to man for information about the aquifer, which lies under much of the Hutt Valley.
3: It's a Two aquifer and it basically starts around Taita Gorge and spreads out underneath the Low Hutt Valley and becomes buried under a layer of fairly low permeability silt material by the time it reaches the Petoni foreshore, it's about 30 metres deep below the ground surface but it's also under pressure so it's what we call artesian so if you drilled a hole into that aquifer at the petoni foreshore the water level in the borehole would rise probably at the foreshore about two or three meters above ground level then from the petoni foreshore that aquifer extends further out beneath the harbor and we think it goes probably about as far as the harbor entrance area we've got good evidence from the geophysical uh, seismic Uh, surveying that we've done over the last few years to show that the aquifer is very, very, very extensive under Wellington Harbour.
2: Although Wellingtonians appreciate the clean water that comes out of the Waifetu aquifer, it turns out that the best clues to finding an aquifer like this come from looking at the rocks, because it's geology that dictates where the water can go. GNS geologist John Begg has been using information collected from a few rock cores drilled into the floor of the Hutt Valley to build up a 3D picture of the Waifetu aquifer.
4: The Waifetu aquifer consists mostly of gravels and sand that were deposited when sea level was much, much lower than it is today. In fact, um, the coastline was away off the Wellington coast what we now know of as Wellington Harbour, was actually an alluvial plain, and the river crossed that alluvial plain, went out through the harbour heads, and right out to the coastline away offshore. So the gravels were deposited as a braided river system. During that period of low sea level stand, which was a probably from about fifty, sixty, seventy thousand 70,000 years ago till, till about 15 or less, 12,000 years ago.
2: Now what's underlying all these gravels? Is there some solid rock underneath there?
4: Away down deep, there is some solid rock, that, which is the same as the rocks uh, beneath the hills on e- either side of the Hutt Valley. So these are grey, wacky rocks, the same as the rocks of the axial ranges of the South Island and the North Island.
2: If we're thinking of this as something like a bit of a layer cake and we've got a cake tin, then the Grey work is in a sense the cake tin?
4: Exactly. It's exactly the cake tin. And in fact, it's, it's all been deformed through time. And so it's more like a bowl than a, than a flat tin. So uh, this deformation has been happening over a long period of time, probably a, a million years.
2: And when did it start filling in with stuff? So what the layers near near the bottom? How old are they, and how did they form?
4: Well, we've got a very poor handle on the age of those materials, but we think that they were probably about somewhere between seven hundred and fifty thousand and a million years old.
2: So, talk me through the layers, starting at the bottom and working up.
4: Well, the the bottommost layers are sitting on top of the um, hard rock greywacke basement. There's a sequence of gravels and sands that are 150 metres thick. There's one place where there are some possible marine sands, and as you come up through the section. You get into a quite a widespread marine sand with shells in it, which is something like 125,000 years old, and one of our predecessors, uh, Graham Stevens, gave it the name Wilford Shell Bed. As we come up above the Wilford Shell Bed, we have the gravels of the Waifatu Artesian Aquifer, called well, gravels they're called. And then sitting on top of that, there are marine deposits of the last six and a half or eight thousand years, and they're called the Petoni marine beds.
2: This layer serves a very important function as a kind of lid to the aquifer, which prevents contamination by surface water.
4: The thing that distinguishes different aquifers is that they are separated by something. Uh, which seals them off, and we call those things uh, an aquaclude or an aquitard, which is is merely just a uh, like a, a seal between the porous gravels. And in the the thing that seals off the Waipatu aquifer is the overlying patoni marine beds, which are fine-grained uh, sands and silts, through which the water can 't escape, and that means that the the inland extent of the these fine grain beds is the elevation at which the water of the aquifer is separated from the surface waters, and in fact, as you go down the valley, you can slowly find that you 're actually in a um, artesian system where if you drill a hole, the water will come up to the top of the hole by itself and f- and flow at the surface through the pressure, the pressure difference between the elevation of the uppermost extent of the aquaclude and the elevation of the site itself.
2: What I hadn't appreciated until now is that there are so many gravel layers of different ages under the Hutt Valley. And that the Waifitu aquifer is just the top layer of groundwater.
3: We think there's probably at least three or four aquifers under the Hutt Valley and under the harbour. So the, the upper aquifer is the Waifitu aquifer, which is the one we're interested in, and that's the one that's most productive. And that's the one that supplies Wellington with uh, 50, 60% or more of its water supply during the um, summer months. As you go deeper, the aquifers seem to become less less permeable, less productive, less water in them. Um, so there is a, a one that's slightly deeper than that that we've explored. Uh, it doesn't seem to be contain enough water for uh, water supply bores. There was also deeper aquifers as well, which there are a few bores intercept, And the water quality seems to deteriorate as you go deeper into that system. So as you get to maybe two or 300 metres depth, the water quality could become quite saline at that depth.
2: And that idea that it's a body of water, it's basically a whole lot of water just sitting amongst gravels. Is that right?
3: Yeah, the water flows very slowly through those gravels, so it's not how you'd envision it. Yeah, you, you couldn't it, go for a swim? No, you, it's, it's certainly not an underground river. So the water flows maybe, in terms of a day, it might only flow a couple of hundred metres in a in a day. So that by the time you get out into the middle of Wellington Harbor where we're intending to drill, the water maybe we're thinking it's, it's more than two decades old. So where does
2: the water from the aquifer come from?
3: There's a two kilometer or three kilometre stretch of river between Titan Gorge and about Kennedy Good Bridge uh, where the aquifer is where what we call unconfined. So the river is connected to the aquifer in that area. And we've measured the loss through the the seepage through the bed of that river to be about a thousand litres per second.
2: So there's a thousand litres of water per second disappearing out of the Hut River down into the aquifer. But GNS groundwater specialist Uwe Morgenstern says there's an interesting twist to that exchange of water.
5: The river is not only losing water, it also, uh, the, water the groundwater also flows back into the river, partially. Uh, just here at Kennedy Goodbridge we have an area where water is basically from the aquifer going back into the river.
2: So what happens to the geology around the Taita Gorge, which causes the bed of the river to be so leaky?
4: The bedrock comes almost up to the surface across the tighter Gorge. It's quite narrow, 350 or 400 metres, and nowhere across that gap is the greywacky below, about uh, 15 metres below the surface. So any water that's coming into the river from the upper Hutt basin actually has to come to the top. And, and then feed into the gravels below the Taita Gorge.
2: Uver Morgenstern studies the water in the aquifer.
5: I'm looking uh, into the isotopic and uh, chemical signature of the water and can identify where the water originates from, so where it has been recharged into the aquifer, and I can also measure how long it has been in the aquifer.
2: Until now it's been thought that the Hut River was the source of almost all the water in the Waifetu aquifer. But Uwe has made a surprising discovery...
5: In the past, it was believed that most of the water recharging into the aquiva is actually from the river. But we just found that uh, it's actually quite a large fraction of water on the eastern side being recharged uh, from a valley floor.
2: Ah, can you tell me a bit more about that?
5: The water from the valley is basically rain which falls onto the, uh, onto the surface there and uh, basically makes the groundwater and that flows uh, toward the sea.
2: So what sort of proportion is this rainwater making up? What do you think now?
5: Uh, On the eastern side of the valley, it's uh, more than half of the water is from rain recharge.
2: Does it matter whether the water going into the aquifer comes from the river or from the rainwater? Do they have different qualities, that water?
5: Yes, it does matter. The river water has a better quality than the water which is recharged in the valley because uh, obviously the valley is urban. Uh, and uh, so the river water, for example, has extremely low nitrate, uh, about uh, 0.2 parts per million, while the water, which is recharged from a, a valley floor, uh, has about 1 ppm, so one part per million.
2: Which is still much lower than drinking yes, standard. Yes, it's about
5: a tenth of drinking water standard, so it's still uh, all very good quality water.
2: So you've got water coming from the river, we've got water coming from rainfall, it's flowing down into the aquifer... What happens to it once it gets into the aquifer?
5: So obviously, the water uh, it, the, the further uh, down valley you go, the, the older the water uh, becomes. But it's a bit more complex. So on the margins of a valley, the water is older, so there is less. A vigorous flow on the sides uh, of a valley, but in the center there is much. Uh, the water is much younger. But uh, starting from, uh, like in Avalon here, where uh, we have a test well, uh, this has a mean residence time of about half a year. And uh, if you go further down to the Waterloo well field, it's about three to six years mean residence time. And if you come close to the coast, uh, it's in the range of twenty years, and a little bit older if you go further down to so. Women's Island.
2: These ages, this is what you've got from the chemical and isotopic work that you do with the water?
5: Yes, so there are so-called age tracers, uh, which is uh, mainly tritium. This is a cosmogenic isotope. It's produced in the atmosphere by cosmic ray interaction uh, with the atmosphere. And the tritium is basically part of a water molecule in the atmosphere. So once uh, the water has uh, penetrated into the ground, it is separated from its source in the atmosphere, and uh, tritium then decreases. case and from its half-life we can determine from a concentration which we measure in the groundwater and its half-life we can determine
2: how old the water is. Uwe says the tritium method can give you a precise age only up to about 100 years. So while it's perfect for dating the Upper Waifetu aquifer, all he can say about the age of water in the deeper Moera aquifer is that it's more than 150 years old. So, how much water gets taken out of the aquifer each day to keep Wellington residents well hydrated and washed? Mark Japari again.
3: It depends on the time of year. In the summer months, it takes up to one hundred and fifteen million litres of water a day from that aquifer, and in the winter, it's possibly less than less than half of that.
2: So that sounds like quite a lot of water coming out, but it's sustainable.
3: Yes, we think the, the sustainable yield of the aquifer is about how much is being pumped out 115 million litres of water a day in the, in the summer. The limit around the amount of water that can be sustainably pumped is controlled by the saltwater intrusion risks into the aquifer.
2: I was going to ask what the risk was if you took out too yeah. much water, so explain that.
3: So if we take too much out of that aquifer, we, we run the danger of pulling in seawater from offshore, and that seawater can access the aquifer through submarine spring sites, which we know are located around Soames Island and off the Hutt River mouth. And the aquifer discharges some of its fresh water through these spring sites into the harbour. The danger of pump, when we pump too much out is that that flow could be reversed and we could suck seawater back into the aquifer. So there's been an enormous amount of, of uh, research and monitoring uh, carried out over the last few decades to assess the sustainable yield of the Waifu Aquifer so that we ensure that it is never um, contaminated by salt water. And the way we do that is to set minimum pressure levels at the Petoni foreshore, so we 've got a, a set of monitoring bores which measure the, the aquifer pressure at the petoni foreshore, and we don 't allow that pressure to drop below two meters above mean sea level because we know if it drops below that there is a, there is a risk that we can we can start sucking saltwater back into the system and contaminate the Waterloo wellfield ultimately.
2: Those springs kind of answer a question that came to me when you were talking about taking water out. So if we weren't taking water out, the aquifer naturally gets rid of excess water by just bubbling it out.
3: We've done quite a lot of modelling, mathematical modelling of the aquifer system, and through those models we can simulate a natural state whereby we turn off the pumping. And we can see when we do that that there's a lot more discharge in the harbour through these submarine spring sites, and there's quite a few of them. They're actually located around the Miramar Peninsula, in a harbour entrance area, around Sam's Island, as I said, off the Hutt River mouth and off sea View. And under, under a natural state, those, those springs would flow uh, considerably more than they do at the present time.
2: When it comes to understanding what's happening with the Waifetu aquifer underneath Wellington Harbour, that's much more complicated than in the Hutt Valley, largely because there's 30 metres of salt water covering everything. This is where Niwa geophysicist Geoffroy Lamarche has been involved.
0: So our work is essentially based on marine geophysics. So we use remote sensing, essentially seismic reflection um, techniques to image the bottom on the top of the yf aquifer. So we don't... The the important thing is that because we're using sonic uh, sounds propagating through the water and through the geological layer, that doesn't propagate really well through water or it doesn't reflect through water. So we don't image the water table. We image the base on the top of the water table. The base of the water table, we know it's a really gravelly, um, rugged and uh, irregular layer. And that's how we image the layer. But we don't know whether there's water in it or not. So... What we've been looking at is where it is, how deep it is, um, whether it's how steep it is, how it dips to the south and what's its extension to the south. Essentially, they were very interested to know how far it comes into this part of the harbour toward uh, Oriental Bay and, and, the, and the central Wellington City and how far it extends to the south and, more importantly, whether it passes the Wellington Harbour um, entrances.
2: So does the aquifer extend out under Cook Strait? We're very confident, and that was
0: one of the t- things we spent quite a bit of time at Niwa. We are pretty confident it doesn't pass the heads. So we'll stop around Miramar, around uh, Scorching Bay area. I don't think we'll pass the head. There's a sort of a rise of the basement, so this greywacky basement that formed the hills around Wellington. Uh, it's also rising just under the, the heads of the Wellington Harbour. And with, we're pretty confident it stops the aquifer, which actually I think is a good thing for those people of Wellington Water. We're pretty confident that the layer that potentially carries the fresh water, so that geophysically look like a layer that could be the water table, and I'm very cautious there, extend to that layer. Whether well, there's water there and drinkable water there, and that's questions for the water specialist.
2: So the evidence suggests there's fresh water under the harbour, but the only way to really find out is to drill down into it. That's where the drill rig comes in.
6: My name's Ian Haycock. I'm uh, the group manager... For Macmillan Drilling. So we've paired up with a company called Griffiths Drilling and uh, we've taken on this particularly challenging job in our mind. It's, it's technically challenging and that's why it's so interesting.
2: What have we got in front of us? Can you describe the drilling barge to us?
6: This is a, uh, a jack-up platform which is ideal for the sort of work. It gives us a stable platform that we can work off out, out in the ocean. So the waves and the swells and the environmental uh, conditions are uh, almost isolated, so it doesn't doesn't affect us so much for our drilling
2: platform. So it's got legs that you can put Correct, down to the yeah. length you require? Yeah,
6: so four spud legs, and they are lowered simultaneously uh, into the into the sea floor, and then we uh, uh, check the bearing capacity to make sure the, the barge is stable, and then we slowly lift the uh, barge out of the water. Uh, it gives us a um, uh, clear space underneath the, the barge so the, the swell and the, and the waves don't affect us.
2: So once you've got it in position, once you've jacked it up, then what happens?
6: We lower down what we call a sea riser. It's a steel pipe that allows us to work uh, within, to advance our drilling tools uh, beyond uh, the seafloor uh, into, uh, into, the, into the marine sediments and, and aquifers.
2: And how quickly do you drill down?
6: Uh, it varies. It, it depends what, uh, what stage we're at. We'd like to be drilling quite quickly if we can, uh, but because it's a lot of data that we need to record and it needs to be quality and, and accurate, it's, it's something that we, we won't be rushing.
3: If we find water, which we very much hope we do, we will then test those bores. When we when we drill into them, we'll do a series of tests to test the water quality and to test how much we can take from those bores. After the first bores are drilled, we'll drill a series of uh, other bores which will be larger diameter and we can test those bores properly um, and test them over a long duration of time to look at how the aquifer responds when we pump it and how the water quality changes and if it is fresh water and if it's usable quality water but ultimately that information will be used to determine what would happen if we started to pump those bores say for emergency water supply for a routine water supply for Wellington and the ultimate control of that resource is going to be the saltwater intrusion risk into the aquifer. So we'll be very carefully calculating how that aquifer responds when we pump it, how much the pressures draw down, and what the risk is of pulling saltwater into that aquifer through um, the various harbour spring sites. And also in the harbour entrance area, we know the aquifer... Probably discharges in the Falcon Shore, Shoals area of the Wellington Harbour, and we want to make sure that we don't start pulling water, seawater, back the other way into the aquifer. So, after these holes are drilled and tested, there's a there's a huge amount of analysis and research to be done to make sure that that resource is, is sustainable and is not going, and we're not going to contaminate that aquifer if we start pumping it.
2: Wellington, of course, isn't the only city in New Zealand to get its water from an aquifer. So, how does the Waifetu aquifer compare in size to other ones? John Begg, has done some calculations.
4: Well, there are quite a number of important aquifers around the country and probably the most important of them is the the Christchurch artesian system. It's probably 3,500 square kilometres in size. It's it's huge. Basically, it's um, a large part of the Canterbury Plains and, and in particular the North Canterbury and Central Canterbury beneath Christchurch. But there are other artesian systems in the Wairau Plains, which um, amount to about uh, maybe 200 square kilometres. The Heratonga Plains around Hastings and Napier, they might be uh, 190 square kilometres. There's a system in Poverty Bay beneath Gisborne, which might be 90 square kilometres, something like that, and, and the Waifatu is probably about 75 square kilometres. So there's a, huge areas providing large volumes of clean water, but real important thing is that these aquifers are a, a resource which is saving uh, the community heaps of money by minimising the amount of treatment that reticulated drinking water has to go through. And these artesian systems should be protected at all costs, really.
2: Thanks to Mark Chapari from Earth Mind, John Begg and Uwe Morgenstern from GNS Science, Ulvi Salive from Wellington Water, and Geoffroy Lamarche from Niwa. If you'd like to listen to that story again, or any other story from our very large audio archive, then just head to our webpage, page, our changing world. Thanks for listening. But for now it's good night from me, Alison Balance, Paul Marier. Botox Cosmetic, botulinum Toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you.